Welcome to the Millennial Pastor Podcast, the podcast where we talk about the intersection between faith and culture. I'm your host, Josiah, and today we have a very special episode for you. It's in fact our season slash series finale. It is the last one with me, and uh, it would have been with Byron, but we had some scheduling hiccups, so forgive us. But this is the last time you'll hear us as hosts of this podcast for the foreseeable future. This is sort of an announcement intro. I'll try to make it brief. Essentially, we have four different guest hosts next year. They're going to span a couple months each, and each one is going to have a different focus, be it being a millennial but also a female, or being a millennial and being in traditional ministry, or being a millennial and leaving ministry. Whatever the focus may be, each guest host has their own focus that may be thematic or even geographic. And I am just incredibly excited for it all. The reason we're doing this is because Byron and I realized that the show could possibly be better if we got out of the way, that we had potentially reached the limit of folks we knew to interview, and that really the beauty of this podcast is in hearing stories from others who are figuring out what it is to do ministry in the world we live in. This leads me to today's guest. If you have listened to the podcast lately, we have had a number of different females in different ministry roles. The most recent was our current youngest ever female DS in the United States. Got to be very specific with some of the stat lines in that label. But today we have only the second female general superintendent that the Nazarene church has ever had. It's an international church. It's been around for about a hundred years. So this is kind of a big deal. Not only is she the second ever general superintendent, she's also the chair of the general board, from what I understand, which is a big deal. And I was given the privilege of interviewing her, of asking questions that I was recommended to ask, of sharing some of the concerns that I have as a young pastor, but I have heard others share as well. And the conversation was encouraging, and I am excited to share it with you. So without further ado... Here is my interview of Carla Sundberg, our general superintendent. On today's podcast, I am honored beyond belief to have general superintendent Carla Sundberg. Carla, good morning. How are you doing? Doing well. Good to be here with you today. May I ask, where are you located in the country as we share this Zoom connection? So I'm in Shawnee, Kansas, which is where I live with my husband. And uh, yeah, we're here for the Christmas holidays. Good to be home. Do you guys have a white Christmas? No, we don't. Oh, is it? Is this is a place that gets snow regularly, though? Um, you know what? Kansas City, it's hit or miss. I mean, there are years that they can get tons of snow. And then there are years that you don't get much snow. So, so far, we've had none and uh, pretty mild temperatures, nothing to complain about, but I like snow. So I'm disappointed that we don't have any. My kids were stoked. Well, it was the day after Christmas actually, but we had a 
uh, day after Christmas full of snow. And then I tried to explain to them like, well, it's still technically Christmas. There's 12 days. But for whatever reason, when you're telling children, you know, Christmas is still happening. It's not December 25th. They don't. They don't. I don't know. They don't agree for whatever reason. <laughs> without, you know, diving into years of theological training and education, I just decided to drop it and say, well, just enjoy the snow. It's fine. Uh, I'm so happy to have you on the podcast. Uh, we normally interview millennials, but we've also regularly interviewed folks that mentor millennials. And I would love to talk to you a little bit about being the general superintendent and, and having a millennial. I think you're, is your daughter a millennial? I have two millennial daughters. Two millennial daughters. I've only met one. And are they both in ministry? No. Uh, well, I mean, I guess that depends on how you define that. My oldest daughter, um, now I don't know if you know this about us, but I lived 13 years in the former Soviet Union and so was involved there. And when I got my call to ministry, it was later on in life. So I went to seminary when I was 39, um, which sounds probably really old, but today's millennials were all my co-students at seminary when I went to seminary. Oh, so that's, what's kind of cool is, you know, you talk about this relationship with millennials is that we studied together at the same time. And, and I think that's helped me have some connection, at least to some of those that would be millennials. My daughters along the way, um, have had a passion for ministry, both of them. And my oldest graduated from high school in Russia, went to Olivet Nazarene university. Um, didn't find herself really comfortable or at home in the United States. She was a history poli sci major. Um, when she finished, she went to England to the Nazarene Theological College and did a master's in theology. But from there, did a master's at the University of Manchester in humanitarianism and, and conflict response. And she is um, she works for a Christian nonprofit in the UK, and she does research and helps to write policy for homeless people in the United Kingdom. So to me, that's ministry, right? Um, I mean, she's not formally in the church. I mean, she and her husband are very active in the church and everything, but her calling is to work in the area of homelessness in the United Kingdom. Well, that's, that's pretty ministerial in my mind. Um, but it, it's interesting. You said you went to school with millennials. Your children are millennials. We, we have played with so many stereotypes on this podcast. We used to play this game called How Millennial Are You? And we'd ask silly questions about, you know, how much you spent on avocado toast or whether you feel very entitled to all your participation trophies, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, we like to have fun with our own stereotypes and just be silly about things like that. But I feel like I, I must confess, I, I'm not going to make you go through any sort of silly stereotypical games and ask you questions about your generation or anything like that. But as a millennial, I don't know if this is a generational thing or just my own personality. Um, I've, I've found it interesting to, to explain our polity to other people. Um, and this is a roundabout way to just basically ask you what it's like to, to mentor someone like me, mentor just a millennial in general with the generational disconnects that sometimes happen. Um, I've explained our polity to other people and, and I've explained what a general superintendent is. And sometimes, you know, uh, just for whatever reason, different faith backgrounds, people don't necessarily always get it. So I've definitely tongue in cheek referred to our generals, I guess you by default included as Nazarene popes, because I'm not exactly sure what else to, to explain it to. But my question is a very roundabout confession of sorts to say, uh, have you found that there's this disconnect sometimes with, with mentoring young pastors 
and having having this complete and total disconnect between the generations not necessarily with you specifically but seeing how one generation takes things to be very you know formal very important seen a certain way that certain things are sacred and we don't joke around with them but then you have another up-and-coming generation that sort of questions a lot of that stuff what i guess the the roundabout question i'm asking is what does it look like to be from one generation but be in a position where you're mentoring the up and coming generation and have all of these different perspectives in the mix. What, what does that look like in your experience, having those daughters, but being from another generation and mentoring the up and coming pastors that are under your care? Well, um, first of all, I think it's important to understand that I think that some of the millennial question is characteristically um, defined by this North American culture. And so the thing I think you have to understand is that I don't necessarily identify totally as being North American culture. Sure. I was born in Germany. I lived there eight years. I've lived 13 years in the former Soviet Union. So I spent 30, uh, 21 years of my life living in Europe. So some of what you talk about, um, I watch almost as an outsider. In other words, I don't necessarily identify. Um, so there, there is, maybe there are generational divides. Is it more of a cultural divide? Um, but if you have lived and worked in different cultures, you're always exegeting the culture into which you are ministering. So to me, if I am working with millennials or anybody else, maybe it's my missionary mindset. For me, it's... Um, I'm not here about what I think I'm about wanting to know who you are and what it is that's important to you. And how do I help to connect with you in the culture in which you find yourself? So I think that I, um, and maybe it's just me, but I don't, I don't grasp onto what might be seen as cultural norms in the United States from somebody of my generation. Does that make sense? Yeah. Uh, follow up question in the same vein. Are there are there cultures, are there countries, are there areas in in the world where this generation disconnect just doesn't exist in your experience? I mean, are we maybe in North America um, particularly aware of our generational differences? I think I think yes. Um, you know, I think there always is sort of a disconnect, uh, maybe. Uh, because of, of generations or historically have been and different perspectives. Um, I do think that the United States, not just the United States, but maybe more Western culture finds itself in a unique position these days. I think that the internet has had a huge impact upon the younger generation. So you look at who's using technology, who's not, where does the influence come from? Um, and so I think, so that maybe is helping it spread more broadly around the world because you do have a, a connect of a younger generation with technology that is then interconnected with an older generation that's not a part of that world necessarily. But the, um, the broadness of what I see uh, seems to be, there seem to be certain characteristics that are more, and I don't want to just say in the United States, but more Western culturally influenced um, that's, that has a differing perspective that I don't see every in other, all the other parts of the world. 
being an international denomination, it's probably important to know that we are not United States centric. And a lot of the tropey stereotypes probably are United States centric. Even sometimes we've have get we've had guests come on and say they might even be ethnically, you know, or or racially centric in some ways as well. Uh, but the reason reason I bring up the mentoring question from the get go is I've heard lots of stories, not just on this podcast, but in interactions with others my age who have either said they wished they had mentors or have have spoken about having mentorships that that didn't always go the way they anticipated and for a varying number of reasons but there seems to be a common thread of just disconnect especially in ministry especially in the denomination within within this culture so it's interesting to hear you say that you went to school with with folks from our generation you have children from from my generation so i guess it sounds to me that mentoring is just, yeah, okay, we'll mentor young people. And it, uh, it doesn't even register. It's like, oh, yeah, I guess you're a millennial. That's sort of an afterthought, it would seem. It's just you, you, you would be interested in mentoring. Because I know at some point you were actually, you, you not only went to the seminary, but didn't you become the president of the seminary as well? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, mentoring and- was kind of your primary focus for a while. Well, let me just say, if you're a disciple or a follower of Jesus Christ, if we are disciples who are making disciples, who are making disciples, who are making disciples, everything about what we do ought to be about mentorship. Literally, every one of us ought to be mentoring or discipling other people that will come after us. And if we're not investing in people to come after us, then I'm not sure that we're being that we're following the model of Jesus Christ. I've um, I've been in the gospel of Luke for an entire year. I decided to really slow down and in, in my scripture reading and my devotional time. And I've been focusing on the gospel of Luke. I finally have made it up to chapter 19 and, um, and just even in there today. And I had this aha moment, maybe about seven, eight months ago, that basically the entire gospel of Luke if you begin to look at it, is a handbook on mentoring. What Jesus does is he intentionally is mentoring the 12. He's intentionally mentoring his inner circle to take on leadership when he's gone. Now, along the way, there's plenty of people that listen in. There are the crowds and all that. But I've decided the crowds are not what's important. What G- I mean, yes, they are. But what Jesus is trying to do even when he's teaching the crowds, even when he's feeding the 5,000, what's he trying to do? He's trying to teach the inner circle what it means to be entirely dependent upon the father. I mean, everything about what he's doing. And so I've had this, this whole year of just my eyes being open to what, to what Jesus is doing. So today I'm on this passage where Jesus is, um, it's the parable of the vine of, of the vineyard and and, uh, and he's referring to Isaiah and how, you know, obviously this is Israel and they've sent the prophets and they beat them up and then they send the son and then they kill the son. And, and he's talking to the Pharisees and the Pharisees are very offended by what he's saying, but the message isn't necessarily for the Pharisees. That message is really for the disciples, because what are they going to do with the information that he is giving them in that moment? He wants them to understand what the religious leaders are doing in their rejection of him. He's also establishing for them that the boundaries of the kingdom are not just for those who were privileged to be Israelites, but now the boundaries of the kingdom are going to expand 
into the whole world. So it, this is all about, it's just given me this new insight as to how I read this gospel and realize this is a whole training manual. And if Jesus is constantly doing that, what are you and I doing? What are we doing in our lives that we are always pouring into the lives of others around us? Hmm. That's an interesting, interesting take that I'm going to have to process now. I don't have enough time to process it before my next question for you. Though. <laughs> That's a, well, it, it, it is connected, I would say. Uh, one of the questions I wanted to ask you was was exactly that this mentoring slash discipling process and uh, if you've if you've heard seen this I don't know I guess there's a worry that there's a lot of young pastors leaving that that there's this mass exodus for one reason or another I'm not sure that it fits in with with what you're talking about with Luke exactly but maybe it does um, but what what's your perspective? on this supposed mass exodus. Um, have you seen a growing number of pastors leaving, particularly um, particularly younger pastors? And uh, what do you think is the cause? Well, uh, let me just comment on that, that there's, there is a narrative that there's this mass exodus. And we actually asked the general secretary to do the statistics on it to say, you know, is it really any different than it ever has been historically? And the reality is that no, it's not different than what it. It's tip. Unfortunately, there there is sort of a typical um, <clears throat> shift that sometimes happens away from a denomination. I think part of what we don't. So let me expound it a couple of different ways as well. I think that those who are engaged in social media and use social media, that we tend to think that that represents then the majority voice. Whereas what one thing that I've discovered is that there is a, a large group of people, including millennials, who are not engaged in social media to that to much of an extent. So you're not really hearing from their voices. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, last when was it last spring, spring and early summer, I will have ordained over trying to remember how many it was like 70 people in that amount of time, many of whom are young people or millennials. Um, I think that there are a lot more that are joining or being a part. Well, there are than that, than that are going now, what is the reason for some who have left? And I think, I think part of your question probably is in that area of mentoring. Is there, is there an issue there? One thing I've learned about mentoring and this is just my personal experience, but most of the best mentoring I've had, no, let me just say all of the best mentoring I've had in my life has not been formal. Mm. In other words, it wasn't somebody assigning me a mentor. This person's going to be your mentor. What generally happens, and this is what I've read in the literature even, is that mentorship happens through informal relationship. It's not that I say to somebody, will you be my mentor? Um, Generally, it happens because there is a connection or a bond between two people that happens in a natural kind of a setting or a natural kind of way. And um, and that mentorship goes both ways, right? You have to have somebody um, who is willing to invest in someone else, but the other person has to be willing or want to have um 
somebody invest in them as well. Does, does, um, is that making sense? Sure. So um, it's a two-way street in some some ways. Well, it's absolutely it absolutely has to be a two-way street, and the reality is that you will never agree with your mentor or mentee on a hundred percent of things. Yeah. And I think if we can understand that the mentorship is relationship, right. And to be willing to be in relationship. And if we're willing to be in relationship, then we also need to be willing to have critical conversations. And that's, that's the thing about having to have this mentor mentee relationship in which you are comfortable enough that you trust one another enough that you feel like it's safe enough to have the conversations that need to be had. And I think that's where I think some of our failure comes is, um, is can I trust in these relationships to have conversations or might what I question or might some of my questions be held against me? I think people might feel that way. Um, but I also feel like, um, uh, there has to be an openness to maybe say, maybe I don't have all the answers and I'm willing to hear another perspective. So that's why it's, it's intricate, right? It's, it's, um, it is a relationship and it's one that we have to have these eyes to be open for it. And that's why, that's why I find this whole thing with Jesus. So fascinating, his intentionality of those relationships and uh, they weren't always perfect. And yet, he kept going, right? Yeah, they were not perfect. I, I remember preaching on a section where Peter asks a very Peter-like question, and I made some sort of jokey remark about Peter took a lot of patience to deal with, it seems. Peter yeah. was sort of a saint maker. That, that was the term that a boss taught me once upon a time, and I think it was because he called me a saint maker. I'm like, what are you talking about? He said, well, I am learning patience from having you as my employee. I'm like, oh, I was just insulted in the nicest way possible. That's great. But Peter was essentially this saint maker. And so Jesus, you know, there was the give and take relationship in, in Luke and seeing Luke now as a mentoring manual is interesting. Um, do you think that some of the exodus that has happened, maybe it's not a mass exodus. Maybe we just talk about it loudly on social media and it makes it feel bigger than it is. Um, do you think though that those that have left a lot of, um, what they left over stems from this lack of mentoring or not having the, the relationships that they feel like they can have, you know, trust to ask tough questions within? I don't know. You know, I'll be honest with you. I haven't been able to sit down with some of them and say, so, you know, really where, where is it? Where is the deepest, you know, point of this? I mean, I think, I think some of it really, ends up revolving around theological issues and where we are as a church and, um, and saying, you know, we have a differing perspective, so we're going to go elsewhere. I think that's a lot of it these days. So differences in, in theological or sometimes even polity driven things um, have been brought up to me. For instance, there's this sort of tension that I see with, with, peers with friends within myself as well there's almost this kind of uh perceivable <clears throat> maybe it's perceived and it's not real sort of like what you were saying going to see the numbers with the general secretary this perceived identity crisis within the 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 nazarene church maybe in in western cultures in the united states between sort of this uh, idea of 
we we behave a certain way versus we believe the right things and maybe that's that's a false choice but that feels like a tension that i've heard many young mm-hmm. pastors point to as being sort of the straw that breaks the camel's back for instance i mean whether you want to there's there's maybe one or two bigger hot button issue well maybe there's three i don't know whether it's lgbtq um conversations whether it's stances on alcohol whether it's what has become a a very hot button issue as of late in particularly the united states of just issues of nationalistic uh you know kind of almost religious fervor uh, there's sort of this, well, we we behave a certain way versus, well, hold on, what is it to actually be Wesleyan? What What is it to have certain theological beliefs about this, that, or the other? So I, I wonder if, if you've seen some of that as well, and if you think it's a false choice, <laughs> or, or if I'm missing the mark completely. I think the challenge is that our identity is it's a both and. And I think we would have one group that would gravitate towards one way and another group that would gravitate another direction. And the tension for us to remain Wesleyan is the both and. It is that, you know, I love the Lord, my God, with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so we believe as Wesley would talk about personal piety. And then I also love my neighbor as myself. And so I have to go out in the world. And I think that we have had tendencies throughout history to see that pendulum sometimes swing one way or swing the other. And so I think the challenge for for all of us is, okay, how do we hold all of that together in tension? And, um, you know, that's the challenge of leadership because that is who we are, right? Is is that we live in that space. Um, And, you know, whether you're talking about Wesley or Phineas F. Brzee, who believed uh, that the responsibility of the church, the Nazarene was to spread scriptural holiness. And that was not just about personal holiness. You know, Wes, um, many people misunderstand even Brzee, who draped his pulpit in the American flag, not because he was a nationalist, but because he was an abolitionist, hmm. because the American flag represented freedom from slavery as opposed to the Confederate flag. So he was a staunch abolitionist. And the early, um, the early holiness group in Texas who merged to become part of the Church of the Nazarene um, in 1907 put out a dramatic statement against racism and an apologetic from the church. And they defined holiness that if we are going to be holiness people, We have to apologize to our black brothers and sisters. We have to create pathways of reconciliation. This is in 1907. This was the understanding of holiness. And so, and and again, um, yeah, I just think if we really truly understand what Wesleyan holiness is, and and that was my aha moment in seminary. Like I said, I went to seminary later on, but my aha moment in seminary as I was studying was to say, wow, if I truly understand what this church is supposed to be, I can buy into it hundred percent. And, you know, so even stands like alcohol, well, why, why do I choose not to drink alcohol? I choose not to drink alcohol because of the social implications of drinking alcohol, because of what it's going to do to my brother or what it's going to do to my sister. 
That's why I choose not to drink alcohol. It is because I love God. I'm going to love others. And Jesus says, you know, to be my disciple, you have to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow him. So there is a sense of self-denial that comes along with following Jesus Christ. So sorry, I'm getting kind of preachy there, but um, that's fine with me. I just think that's the beauty of who we are. And so, so, so the answer lies in that, that middle space and how do we hold that intention? And I, I, I wonder though, that tension seems to be what oftentimes leads to sort of the exodus of, of not just young pastors, but many pastors that have theological hangups with X, Y, and Z, or maybe specific polity hangups with, you know, whether it's alcohol or some other stance that our denomination has taken. So I wonder how we, how we guard against picking a side pendulum wise, swinging one way over the other two extremely. But I also wonder in this present moment, what we do with some of these real hot button issues that have reached fever pitch or have reached boiling points. And sometimes it's just, you know, they reach boiling points on social media, right? And people get really upset and misbehave and yell at each other through a keyboard and all caps or, or whatnot. But I wonder if, if it isn't still some sort of indication of the tensions that, that are being felt between those different groups, what we do to not fall prey to that tension being uh, overwhelming enough to want to leave it all behind. Well, I think, and, and I'm going to sound really simplistic here. Okay, go for it. But I feel like the Christocentrism of our gospel message is where we have to remain is in the, and again, that's the center space, right? Phineas Brzee used to say nothing to the left, nothing to the right, straight ahead, Jesus only. So, um, so let me just talk a little bit. I'm going to kind of come around about to this, but I think that we can be really distracted by having a lot of peripheral conversations that distract us from the centrality of knowing Christ. Ultimately, what did Paul say? I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. I want to be focused on knowing Jesus Christ. So there are some millennials with whom I've had this mentoring relationship. And one of the things that I do in that mentoring relationship is talk about, let's focus on knowing Christ. There's a lot of stuff we can talk about that we may not agree on, but let's talk about what it means to know Jesus. And so um, I recommend reading a book by um, Wayne Cordero called The Divine Mentor. Um, and it is a book in which he talks to you about how to read the word of God and allow the word of God to become your divine mentor in every issue of life. That book is what has influenced my ability to study the word of God. Out of that, he teaches you how to do a journaling of, of using the word of God. Um, it's called soap, but you talk about what's the scripture that spoke to you today? What's your observation? What's the application? And what's your prayer? really focusing in on what is it I'm going to learn from the word of God today? Because the reality is the more that I focus in on that word, the more I focus in on knowing Jesus. So I am really about the spiritual practices. I want you to read the word of God. I want you to spend time in prayer. And I want you to spend about an hour a day doing that. And if you do that for a month, then come back and let's talk about how you're doing, what the challenges might be, what the struggles might be. 
But what I've discovered is that we are becoming so distracted about all this other stuff that we're not knowing Christ. And that's, that's the center of it all. And, and, and do we have answers for all the questions of this world? You and I don't have those answers. I don't have those answers, but I am reminded that I am supposed to know the one who does. My job is to know Christ. Your job is to know Christ. The other thing that I do then in mentoring is I use four Wesley questions for accountability questions. So if we were doing this, you and I would get together once a month and I would, I would answer the four questions first. The first question is, how does your soul prosper? And I'm, I'm just going to answer them for you today. How does my soul prosper? You know, this week, um, I'm grateful to God for this week because it's a week of downtime. Honestly, I've had a pretty rough month. My husband had a very severe fall. He had a major concussion, broken nose, broken cheek, broken hand. Um, we've been through surgery with him, all kinds of stuff in the last month. So it's been really crazy. Um, so this week I just kind of was telling the Lord, I need some time with you, Lord. And part of my responsibility this week is I was asked to write, well, the foundry has asked me to write a book on prayer. And I told Bonnie, the editor, I said, I don't know that I'm worthy to write a book on prayer right now. Cause I'm not sure I've been spending the time with Jesus that I need to spend with Jesus. But yesterday I was working on that book all day. And the presence of the Lord was so near. So I'm going to tell you today, how does my soul prosper? I'm grateful for the presence of God that takes us through the rough times. The second question is, what means of grace have you been attending in your life? You know, for Wesley, he wanted to know, are you going to church? Are you participating in communion? And, um, and for me, it's hard as a general superintendent when I'm at a different church almost every single week and I'm the one that's up preaching. And sometimes I just need to be able to sit and participate in worship. So Christmas Eve, I was at church. And again, the spirit of God just came down. And I have to say, I'm grateful for that means of grace just to be in God's presence. Means of grace you know, I was sharing with you from Luke this week, God's just been speaking to me again, really heavily from Luke's gospel. So that's part of my means of grace. Next question is what opportunities for ministry have you had and how have you availed yourself of them? And I'm going to confess to you that as a general superintendent thinking about, um, I, I pray about how do I have the opportunity to minister to someone that needs to know Christ? Because most of my time is spent with people in the church. So I know that some of my opportunity is to mentor young people and other people. Yes, but how do I minister to others? So I have joined my neighborhood book club. Mm. And, um, and so next week on Tuesday night, I will go to the ladies book club. And I will be the only person that will not drink alcohol at that party. <laughs> um, you know, but they, that's fine. And actually, and I've been reading books that I would not normally read, but I'm also getting to know my neighbors in a way that I wouldn't get to know them. And as a matter of fact, tonight, our neighbors on both sides, um, they're couples, they're older than us. They're coming for dinner tonight here to our house. And that's the first time they'll have been here in our home with us. But I have just gotten to know the ladies because I've been going to book club and I'm just grateful for that opportunity. And so 
So I'm trying to figure out, even as a general superintendent, how do I have opportunities to minister on that personal level to people? How, how do you explain your job to people that aren't Nazarene, if I could ask real quickly? You know, you talked about the Pope. The easiest thing I tell people is a bishop. Uh, people okay. get that. So, uh, and then the final question, and again, this is what I do in mentoring, okay? This is, this is the formal piece of it. If you want to do this with me, this is what we're going to do. The final question is, um, what temptations have you had and what have you done about those temptations? You know, and, and I'll just say my personal temptation lately has been is discouragement. It's been a little bit discouraging, um, some of what we've gone through the last few weeks, but yet God is good. And I, I have to pray through that, that discouragement. So, so, so my answer is from that question that you gave me is if you and I were going to, or if I were with somebody and we were talking about this mentoring, my focus will always be to come to know Christ. And that in knowing Christ, and I've been in mentoring relationships with people where we've had some of these other questions, but the more that we have focused on Christ and the more that we have focused on our relationship and knowing Christ, and then how we could minister in the world, the, if I can just say this, the less important some of those other conversations have become. And, and I don't want to minimalize them, but I'm just saying, I, I don't think that they, we, we cannot get away from the Christocentric nature of how we are supposed to live. And, and that is to focus on Christ and then this cruciform life that we're supposed to be living. One of the, one of the interesting things I read that you wrote lately had something to do with focusing on Christ and how it affects the way we treat those outside the church or outside of our mm -hmm. own tribe. And, and it was just thought provoking. It was a, a second confession after the Naz Pope thing. Uh, the second confession is I was, I just wanted to talk to you so much about, okay, this is really interesting. Cause I see that from the outside that, that you have, you know, not just these really profound mentoring opportunities, which thank you for, for sharing that. That was, I'm still kind of processing it as I ask this next question. But I see all this time spent in, you know, ordination ceremonies or overseeing uh, district assemblies or going to some sort of uh, new school that's opening in another country. Or, you know, I just see all these really interesting, super cool events that you get to participate in. But they're all, I guess, sort of like a high church thing that, you know, very, very church intensive, very polity denominationally focused but hearing you share your concerns your heart for for those that are not a part of our our little tribe or our, our denomination was really intriguing and it made me want to to have this conversation with you in the first place but then also hearing you talk about your mentoring process and having transparency uh, it, it's encouraging for me first and foremost but i think i think it's great to hear that you have just like a regular book club with your neighbors i think that's amazing i i really really love that. And it, it makes me wonder about the future of ministry in general. Um, you're a general superintendent, you go around the world, you have spent a lot of your life outside of the United States. But I'm sure, uh, well, maybe I'm not sure, I shouldn't say that. The United States has gone through some stuff over the past couple years, whether it's with the pandemic, whether it's, you know, these, these issues with with politics and partisanship and choosing sides, over any number of issues. But in the midst of that, there seems to be this growing concern about 
just the future of, of parish ministry in general. And I wonder if there's not some sort of connection with what you're talking about with just, you know, being parts of book clubs and being a good neighbor and what it looks like to be a pastor in the future. You talked about your daughter who is, she currently lives in England. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Who's in ministry, but it's maybe not this traditional conventional pastoral ministry that's connected to a Sunday morning worship gathering or, you know, a worship gathering that doesn't have to be on Sunday morning necessarily. But I wonder with your travels, I know that in my experience outside of the U.S., co-vocational, bivocational ministry is fairly common. It might be, might be the norm um, in a lot of countries. But I wonder if there's, a, there's maybe a misplaced fear at that happening here in this country. Um, but what do you see with the future of parish ministry? And, uh, you know, this, these concerns for traditional methodologies potentially changing or, you know, in some places maybe going away. I live in a, a very unchurched, you know, post-Christian part of the world up in Seattle. And in some ways it seems like, yeah, this is just what's going to happen because of where we live and the culture we're a part of. But what do you, what do you see with the future of parish ministry, particularly, you know, with daughters that are in ministry to some capacity, but also as just the general of a church who is invested in mentoring in those coming after you? Well, I think one thing is what do we, what do we define as parish ministry? And, um, you know, so we moved to Russia and there is no church whatsoever. So what is, what is parish ministry? Um, in some ways, I think we have adopted a language of parish ministry or maybe a thought model of ministry within an existing church. When I would like to suggest, so, so we moved to this neighborhood in Russia and we're looking for some place that we can have a gathering for people to come together for church. And that is an important piece of it. And that culture, if you're not going to gather you know, that they have to have that possibility. So we go to this local government office and we're looking for some place that we might be able to rent to have church. And the head of that region, there were 2 million people that lived in that region. And the head of the region says to us, first of all, I don't think I have any place where you could meet. I don't have any place you could rent. But he also says, you know, I have 2 million people in my district. We don't have a single church and I don't have any idea why we would ever need one. So. Fast forward a few years, we actually were able to purchase the second floor of a building in his district, and it becomes the local church, the Nazarene. But again, we don't, my husband and I, we don't come from this traditional parish church kind of model. We come from the model that every church needs to be a place where you preach, teach, and heal. You follow the model of Jesus Christ. Again, it's this Christocentric model of what does this look like? So there is the preaching, there is the proclamation. There is the proclamation of the good news of Jesus Christ, but there is also the teaching model, which was we taught everything about the word of God all the way from, it took us 10 years from an atheist communist to come to Jesus Christ, to become an ordained elder in the church of the Nazarene. That's a long continuum of what it's going to take, but you have to have teaching all the way across that. And then healing was that we expected every Nazarene church to be engaged in compassionate ministries. In other words, that you had to have an outward ministry within your community. So we, we did a lot of work with feeding the community. We clothed the community. And one of the things that we had was we put in a beauty parlor in the church. 
And we had three young, we had two young ladies that had just graduated from um, beauty school. They needed a place to work. We said, you work in our place two days a week. You give free haircuts three days a week. You can charge your customers and the places here. Well, then what we did was we printed out coupons for free haircuts. And then we took them to the local government office. The guy who says, I don't need you in my neighborhood. And we give him the coupons for the free haircuts so that whenever people come in to complain to him about you have nothing to offer me, they go here, you can go get a free haircut down at the church of the Nazarene. So two days a week, they actually had appointments on them, but people didn't, Russians didn't believe that you were going to get an appointment. So they'd all show up at nine o'clock and they would wait all day. And so they would come in and we had ladies from the church that would serve them tea and chat with them. And the Jesus film showed the whole time while they're waiting to get their hair done. Now, a lot of things are happening in the mix of all that, right? But I'll never forget one day when I answered the phone in the church and it was the local government office and they were calling us and asking us whether we might be able to help a family in the neighborhood who had just had a family member die and they couldn't help them. And it was at that moment that I discovered we had been doing parish ministry Mm. because we believed that that whole community was our parish. Our church became known as the church that clothed the entire neighborhood. So whether they came to church on Sunday, that was the people that worshiped with us on Sunday. That wasn't the extent of our parish. Our parish was the community that God had given us. And I think that there is a great, a bright, great future for parish ministry if we understand it defined in that way. So your parish, and, and this was how the Salvation Army began in London, is like you got assigned to a city block. And your responsibility was to minister to that entire block. So I'll be honest with you. I think about this here. The Lord's been challenging me to say, you do this stuff with the ladies in the neighborhood. If they had a spiritual need, would they feel like they could come to you? In other words, that should be my role in this community, right? And so, so that is how I can do parish ministry, even if I am not attached to a local church at this point in time. But I really believe that every single local church has got to, I don't know, get out the map and decide where's your parish. And then figure out how in the world do we become the spiritual, you know, whatever this community needs, do that for this parish. Then we have a great future. If we think that parish ministry means I only minister the people that come to my church, then we have a problem. Hmm. To further compound the the potential problem that we're facing, uh, this has been my experience. This has been plenty of other folks' experience that I've had the opportunity to talk to about it. Um, there's sort of this tension of, well, we have to pay for this building, um, but we're not sure if we can pay for both the building and the pastor slash the ministry that happens in it. So would it be, would it be presumptuous? Would it be too far to say, perhaps sometimes we need to be willing to sell a building if it better equips us to be the parish ministers of that neighborhood? I mean, what, what does that tension look like if you're mentoring a young pastor going through the process of having to have those board meetings where they're having these tough questions and looking at the budget and seeing that, you know, over the past two years, they're in a deficit, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. 
and they're at these cross points where you know now they're they're having to decide what do we do to be good stewards of what we have but also be mindful of the ministry we're called to have in this place that we live well yeah those are tough conversations that i do believe have to be had and you need to think about the ministry now the question becomes are there ways the building could be repurposed for that parish ministry within the community um, that might bring in income. Sure. You know, I mean, I think, I think we have to really be creative in thinking that way, because even if you sold the building, then what would you do with the money? Would you, you know, set up like a compassionate ministry center or what kind of thing would you do? Or could you go ahead and do that from within your place? And could you go ahead and work on raising funding and that kind of stuff from the facility that you have, because the reality is that the replacement of the facilities, most of you, most places, if you sell the facility, you'll never be able to replace it. And you could never get back into that community. Um, so, so those are, those are the tough questions you really have to face with it. So utilizing space to, to generate some sort of revenue, that's also hopefully maybe blessing the community around it would be the first question the first tact you would take with a, a young pastor struggling to figure out what to do next yeah yeah i yeah. i've i've been fortunate enough to find something like that right i i i am the executive director of a nonprofit that rents space from a nazarene church and uh, that nazarene church is also um my assignment it's where i'm still assigned as a nazarene pastor when i was kind of wondering if I still wanted to be a pastor, if I may confess that. Um, and in this, in this moment, I realized, wow, look at this. This place is kind of living. It is existing for its community, right? It's, it's, yeah. got, it's got the Sunday morning worship, which is, which is great. But then it's on Monday, it's doing things for its next door neighbors. And it is doing that on Tuesday as well, and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and Saturday yeah. and throughout yeah. the rest of the week. Um, and, and I saw that as this beautiful thing, but I've also had interesting experiences where there was something seen, it was sometimes seen as sacrilegious by the parish, the, the, by those that the parishioners that go to the, con, the, the Sunday morning gathering or that are on the board, like we can't let people use our sanctuary. We can't let them. I mean, what if they don't clean up after themselves, this, that, or the other. And it was a long go. It was my former assignment. It was a long process to try to get buy-in to say, if the building is not being used, what are we doing with it? If it's just sitting there empty the rest of the week, I mean, we can't afford it. We can't do this, that, or the other. But I always found that to be this interesting point of contention where I guess I had the, the assumption that the generations before me thought this was just, we could never do anything like this. It's, it's sacrilegious almost to say, well, this building could be used for X, Y, and Z. It was always on my heart to do that. I, I did my best to try to sort of curate those things. But as the, I was the lead pastor, but the joke for me was I was just generously the only pastor at that church. There's only so much you know, bandwidth. There's only so much time in the day to make all of that happen. But I do think in, in broad sweeping terms, that might be the future, particularly at least in my corner of the country. That might be the future that, that we could look to, plan for, and be maybe even excited about because I, I don't know. Maybe this is maybe just as my personal perspective and, and I could be way off, but I think that's the best way we could actually get to know our neighborhood. I think it's really difficult 
to to know who your neighbors are if all you're focused on is two hours on a Sunday morning with the same people that are in the building week in and week out. And then Monday, you, you don't actually interact with the house next door. I think that's an easy trap to fall into for, for many of our uh, parish churches who are having these conversations where they're worried, rightly so, about the Sunday morning, but maybe they're missing the opportunities of Monday being just as important in the ministry and life of the church. Well, and I think, uh, to be honest, if you would go back to when those churches were planted, they were probably heavily engaged in their communities. And, and that's what it was all about. And it's kind of like they kind of grow up and become really ingrown. And so how do we help them become outgrown again? Uh, the very first church my husband and I were at in St. Louis, he was minister of youth and music. And um, I'm originally an RN, so I was working we've been bivocational basically for years. We, we always joked about if I didn't work as a nurse, my husband wouldn't have been able to be in ministry, you know, and I basically supported us. I, I worked half time and made twice as much as he did back in those days. And mm -hmm. so, um, you know, that's just how we chose to partner. We said that it's how we're going to have to do this. But I remember we were at an inner city church that was a drive-in church and we really wanted to minister more to our community. And we had some people that had been saved in that church as bus kids years ago. And they had such a burden for the kids in the community, but the kids in the community were rough and it was tough to minister to them. And so we had devised a program where we could minister them on Saturdays and they would come in for about four hours and we would bring them in. We would feed them because most of those kids were hungry. Um, and we had a very interactive kind of almost a VBS program every Saturday for them. Well, and then the idea was that we wouldn't try to bring them back in on Sunday because on Sunday, the drive-in crowd came and they wanted church differently and they wanted these kids to behave their way, you know, and all that. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and, and I, we were young and naive and I will never forget the all church meeting where people just yelled at us and just said, how can you do this? You can't have Sunday school on Saturday. It's unheard of, you know, and, and stuff. And um, that was the like I said, I, I was, I was also young and naive and, and I didn't know that I would face that kind of resistance, but I guess I share that with you to say, I've been there. I, I've heard that from, from the people, but I've also, um, you have to know that my husband, most of our ministry has never been to, well, we got to go to one really great established church. Other than that, we were always carving out new stuff. Um, but when the church gets desperate enough, then then God's able to really come in and do something. Hmm. You know, we, we moved to our little church in Austin, Texas, after that experience in St. Louis and in Austin, um, you know, they were down to about 20, 25 people. And we didn't know that the DS had kind of told them this, this couple, they're your last chance, <laughs> you know, but, um, but once they trusted us, it was amazing. It was just amazing what God did. But, but what happened is that many people from the community came to know Christ and, and we just watched, it was just, yeah, super fun experience. That was my first lead pastor position was basically a, well, with or without your help, this church might close. So you can't make it any worse. Like, well, that's encouraging. Yeah. <laughs> it, yeah. It was sort of weirdly encouraging because it, it, the joke for the first year was, well, even if I burned it down, would it have been any worse? Right. Like, I mean, they were yeah. potentially going to close anyway. So sort of a relief for myself. 
but it does make me wonder kind of circling back to your your luke comment on how the, the church discipleship being christ followers is all about this relational mentoring uh my wife is a nurse full disclosure going through this serious season with COVID has been difficult at best because she would be living an experience and being told that it wasn't real by folks that attended the church that I was the pastor of. And that was hard. Um, That aside, it does make me wonder about the future of not just parish ministry, but the future of pastoral ministry period and what we are going to define it as. Uh, If we are at this moment of potentially a good desperation in the church where we're willing to sort of think outside the box particularly in, in the United States, but around the world. I wonder if some, some of this will probably be geographically specific, but since I live here, I'm going to ask it about this country. I wonder about mentoring the next generation uh, who feels called into ministry and the expectations I should have or that I should share with them about what it looks like. Because the expectations I was given was that I would find a full-time ministry position. I wouldn't make a lot of money, but I would actually make money. You know, I would potentially make enough money to live. And that I was always told, and I really strongly emphasize this, that my wife is just the blessing that that you get to have when she's there. She's a nurse. She would work every other Sunday half the time, right? Um, but I would always try to make sure it was clear that that they shouldn't, you know, depend on on her income so that they didn't have to pay me as much money, right? And I don't know if that was misguided. I'm sure that there's plenty that we could unpack in that assumption. But that was sort of what I was mentored to to believe and see in ministry, that I should negotiate for enough money that just in case my wife can't work, that maybe we could survive, right? That I could pay off student debt and feed my kids. I'm not so sure that's even close to realistic for the next generation of pastors in this country or not, um, or around the world, period. And I'm not really sure what, I should should believe, think is coming around the pipe so that if I do have the opportunity to men, mentor another up and coming next generation pastor, I don't even know what to tell them about what to expect with, with this full-time slash part-time co-vocational, bivocational ministry life. So I, I don't know if you have any insight into that or if maybe your experiences across the, the other side of the world would speak to that as well. But in this country here, what do you think the future of, of pastoral ministry looks like as it pertains to these labels, these designations, full-time, part-time, et cetera? Well, first of all, I would say in 90% of the churches of the Nazarene around the world, the pastors are co-vocational or bivocational. So this model that I think got established in the U.S. and probably the I don't know, 19 post-World War II, maybe kind of model, mm-hmm. 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s kind of model um, that now you were going to be assigned to a church and they're going to take care of you financially or whatever. So, you know, just interestingly, what I was sharing with you in our own lives, that that wasn't a reality. Sure. Um, we've only pastored at one church that would have paid my husband enough Um you know, of a, of a salary. And that was after we moved back from Russia, that's one place. And, um, and, you know, and, and most people don't even know this. We, we served as district superintendents, but, um, we were co-district superintendents. So we each got half the salary, Hmm. you know, so we, but I'm sure you both worked more than 40 hours a week. 
And we did, we did, you know, so I'm probably not a great one to talk to in terms of that, because I just believe that, um, yeah, I, I don't have that expectation that the church is going to be able to take care of those needs. I, I, I think we have to have more of a missional kind of mindset, which is, you know, and, and I, I guess I always felt this way, even as we began our, our work in the U S my husband and I, I had always felt called to be a missionary. And I thought, Lord, if that's in the United States and that's where it's going to be, but, um, you know, that missional mindset was you just kind of do whatever you have to do to help bring people to Jesus. And, um, you know, if that meant that I had to, again, so what am I saying here? What I'm saying is I just think that you even go back to the disciples. They were co-vocational. Um, I mean, some of them had some people that helped to support them financially in their ministry and that kind of stuff. But I think that we have established this vision that I'm not sure is reality. Hmm. So, you know, people for the future, you've got a call to be a minister. That's awesome. But we're going to need a lot of ministers who also have a way to make an income and to support themselves financially. And I think that's maybe one of the best things we could be teaching young people going, studying in, you know, for ministry. It's like, well, what else could you do that you might be able to do um, that's going to help you financially and you could be in the ministry, right? Do you think there's any space for quality changes as far as years of experience? Because there's, there's this current conversation I've heard from those that are in the track towards ordination where they don't quite qualify for full-time designation, but how do you actually quantify hours in ministry? And, you know, it's the difference between three or four years of experience versus maybe up to eight years in experience. What does that look like? That, that piece of the puzzle, which could be very discouraging for someone who is worried about, Oh, wow. Eight years towards this thing. Well, it's, um, a lot of that is based on, on how the districts do it. So it's district look, by district. If you look at the manual, the manual doesn't, doesn't do that because the perspectives would be so different from around the world. So that's a contextualized uh, mm-hmm. requirement. That's why I, I was wondering, I was wondering why some districts like, Oh, you only had to do three years of that. Why is that? I thought that was a universal thing, but Shows you what I know. It used to be. It used to be in the manual, very, very designated, but it's not anymore because it really has to be contextualized. Because again, it was something like you had to give 40 hours a week and you had to have so much percent of your income. And we're going, that doesn't work in most of the world. You know, there was a very American sort of standard of what that meant. And so that's why it's not in there anymore. Uh, yeah, that does sound pretty American centric. It, it, uh, another another follow-up question to that there's probably a lot that needs to be unpacked with some of those perspectives or visions or dreams or, or whatnot. But do you think with someone like your daughter as the perfect example of this, do you think that we need to have a broader imagination for what pastoral ministry could look like? Do you think particularly maybe in the United States, we've had far too narrow a view of what parish ministry or pastoral ministry looks like or should be designated as such? Um, well, I think I just go back to what I said before. I think we need to understand that parish ministry is not just about those who attend from your parish, but what is your parish? And so then how do we think about how we reach out and we minister to those within that, that area where God has asked us to be, we're to be light in that area. So, yeah, I think that there, 
there needs to be a different model of what that looks like. You know, I have been greatly influenced by the mission field, but I really believe we need to have that kind of a mission field kind of attitude towards what we do here in the United States. And I think that has to replace some of how we have thought about parish ministry. You know, there's a long history of, of having a very focused, very maybe narrow view of it being in a building on a Sunday morning for two hours, et cetera, et cetera. I think that might be the biggest hang up that many, many of the pastors in my generation have with, with some of these tension, some of these conflict creating, I don't know, conversations, we'll call them, generously call them conversations. Well, uh, and the, the thing is, is that if we look back at theological education, we really focused <laughs> so much of it on that morning worship hour, right? Yeah. I mean, so much of that education is how do I prepare that sermon? How do I do, you know, do that? And so then suddenly we find ourselves in a world in which that is not adequate or, you know, that, that we really in the late eighties and nineties, we bought into the attractional model of church. And so then all of a sudden, all of this focus is on what do I do in those two hours in the morning? And we, you know, my sense is that somewhere we, we didn't focus as much on discipleship. We didn't focus as much on bringing people along in, in the Christian walk. I think that's why you're hearing from us now, even as leaders on this emphasis on the journey of grace. I think that if we're truly going to be Wesley and holiness people, we have to invest in, you call it mentoring, I'll call it discipleship, whatever we want to say it, but everybody needs to be involved in this. We all need to be involved in discipling people across this continuum and leading everybody into a deeper walk with Jesus Christ. And a lot of that, not a lot of that happens during a morning worship service. That's a piece of it. That's a piece of it, that proclamation kind of piece or that 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 worship service kind of piece. But what are we thinking about all the rest of the time? You know, is everybody who's a part of your church engaged in discipleship in one way, shape or another? I think that's the big question we need to be asking ourselves. And so as pastors, are we equipped to think about that? Are we equipped to think about how we do that? Are we equipped to think about how we minister in our communities? You know, you've probably had to learn a lot about working with a nonprofit and how all of that comes together. Some, for me, I think that that's even an important piece that mom, almost everybody needs to know. So while I was at NTS, we worked with the Kaufman Foundation, which is, um, has a special program on entrepreneurship so that we could teach a course in entrepreneurship to those who were going to the ministry. People wanted to take that course because we believe that that's going to be a really important co-vocational piece for the future. But if you're going to do that, you need to learn about business. You've got to learn about registration, all kinds of things way outside of how to exegete a passage of scripture. Oof. Yes. Possibilities are endless. If you have time, I have one final question for you. Do you have time for one final I question? I do. I'm fine. Okay. It was the, it, it, the question is pretty simple with all of these possible changes with all of this, you know, cultural upheaval with all the, the things that are happening, particularly from what I see in the United States, but obviously around the world, things change in the blink of an eye there are reasons to have anxiety and stress, right? There are reasons to have fear. There are reasons to, to worry about what will be maybe taken away about things I like about church, right? That's, that's a common, it's a common perspective to have is worrying about what will change. I am curious about what you're most hopeful about what you're, 
what you're looking forward to, whether you want to call it some sort of opportunity for revival or just something that you generally are excited about in the church. And I'll answer first, if you, if you would give me the opportunity to do so. Um, it's the reason I, I got connected with you in the first place. The, the previous episode of this podcast, I got to interview a friend. Her name is Olivia Metcalf and she's a DS. And just the fact that someone like Olivia is DS gives me hope um, for a lot of reasons, not just because of, uh, you know, knowing her personally, but because she exemplifies a lot of the things that I think you're, you're talking about, hoping to instill within those you're mentoring, but also because she's young and she's a woman. And for, for so many reasons, it, it just br- gave me hope. And knowing the connection she had with you and how she got placed in that position, it was something that gives me hope for the future of the church for a number of reasons. But I'm wondering, it's a broad question. I'm wondering, it, it, and maybe it's not just a pinpoint specific answer, but what gives you hope? What do you see uh, in the future of the church with revival in, in North America or around the world? Well, that's a great question. Um, you know, and let, let me just go back to something we talked about earlier. My connection to Olivia is that Olivia and I graduated together from NTS. <laughs> that's great. So we were students at the same time and we both graduated the same year, but, um, and I'm just so proud of her and grateful for her and her work and her ministry that she's doing. So I thank the Lord for her. I am hopeful because my hope is in Jesus Christ. In this season, it's easy to look at the storm that's around us. And um, the Lord has spoken to me again through Luke, <laughs> but um, the story of Jesus out on the sea of Galilee in the middle of the storm and the storm is raging around the disciples, but Jesus is asleep. Mm. And um, there's a painting that was done by Rembrandt called the storm on the sea of Galilee. And I learned about this because one night while I'm traveling, I was watching Netflix and I was watching um, the greatest heists of history. And it tells a story about this Gardner Museum in Boston and how all these paintings were stolen, including this painting by Rembrandt called The Storm on the Sea of Galilee. So it's been missing for 30 years or more. Nobody knows where it is, but somebody had taken some high-res pictures of it before it was stolen. And I began to look at these pictures of that painting and the Lord has just spoken to me through it so much so that for my birthday this year, my husband got me a canvas of it, like a three by four foot canvas of it. And it sits right across my desk at the global ministry center, Rembrandt's storm on the sea of Galilee. But you see the disciples in that painting, it's fascinating because on the left-hand side, there are all these people that are trying to run the rigs and, or riggings or whatever it's called in the sails. And, and they're working really hard in the middle of the storm. Like they're using everything that they've got. We're going to make this work, you know? Then you've got, there's one guy that's puking over the side of the boat. You've got other people around Jesus. And then Jesus has this look on his face. He's been awakened. And it's actually a look of, that I call befuddlement. And he's looking at them like, what in the world? You know, why are you working so hard on your own over there, over there trying to run the riggings? Why are you throwing up? What, what is going on with all of you, right? And, and on any given day, I could be one of those people in that boat. The problem was they didn't realize who was in the boat with them. And historically, the boat has represented the church. 
and the seas have represented the world. So we are the church. And here's what we need to remember about the church. It's not ours. Jesus says, I will build my church. The church is the bride of Christ. There is something incredibly unique and powerful about the church. And it is not ours and it belongs to him. And Jesus is in the boat of the church. And he is the son of God. So why am I hopeful? Because if Jesus is in our boat, then all of this stuff around us, the raging of the seas, he knows it, he understands it, he gets it. But he's saying, you have to focus on me because I am the son of God. And then he has power over that storm and the storm immediately calms. Now, there are those that say that that moment on the Sea of Galilee is just kind of a foreshadowing of what's going to happen when he gets to shore. When he gets to shore, he gets on the other side, and it's where he actually heals the man of the legion of demons that go into the swine and go off. And, and so they, they say it's like a foreshadowing of the spiritual storm that he's going to face. And it is to build the faith of the disciples, because if he has power over nature, which they had never seen before, obviously they don't have to be afraid of the legion of demons that are in that man. Mm-hmm. So it comes back to who do I have trust in these days? You know, sure, I don't like what I see around me. I don't like the the stormy waters, but I know the one that I believe in. And, you know, in my early days in Russia, we were invited to a meeting of religious leaders in Moscow. And there weren't very many of us because there were very few churches. And we got into this meeting and there might have been about 20 of us. And one of them that came was a charismatic Orthodox priest Father Gleb Yakunin, and he had to have, he, he came covered in a cloak with bodyguards to our meeting. Hmm. And as we got together in our meeting, I remember our Baptist brothers looking over at us and said, we called this meeting because we just need to know who's who. So that when we're all in prison together, we know who's who. Wow. I'd never been to a meeting like that before. Pretty sobering when my husband and I left. And here's the deal. The division between the church, the boat, and the waters, to be honest with you, I think the division will become greater and greater. But I have to know the one that I trust in. And I I can't still the waters. I can't even fix the boat. But I can keep my eyes on Jesus. So I have hope because I also have hope that as the waters get rougher, (laughs) I believe that there are those who are going to say, I can't put my trust in that anymore. I have to put my trust in Jesus. And if that's where we end up, and that's what he also teaches the disciples in Luke. If you read his sermon, you know, in Matthew, it's the Sermon on the Mount. In Luke, it's the Sermon on the Plain. And on the Sermon on the Plain, it says he looked at his disciples and began to teach. In other words, the crowds are there, but he's teaching the disciples, right? And he said, blessed are you when you are poor. Because he said, because when you're poor, when all the bad stuff happens, you're going to learn that I have what you need. 
So I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful because of what I've lived through in the former Soviet Union. It taught us that God is all we need, folks. And and I'm sorry, I get preachy, but I'm really passionate about it. Jesus is in the boat. And and I'm just going to trust him for what has to happen. And I told you it sounds simplistic, but that's where I have to live. I, you know, I, I don't think I get a vote or a say, but I'm, I'm good with it. <laughs> uh, I, I'm going to Josiah millennialify it. Um, the boat ride might not always be comfortable <laughs> and it might not always be easy. And maybe we'll have temptations to fight the storm, right? In some sort of culture war approach to, to things, but it's probably easier just to trust the dude we're in the boat with. <laughs> Well, and that, that's the deal. And so when I look at that picture, I wish I could find this picture for you. You can look it up. You can Google it. Rembrandt store on the Sea of Galilee, but you'll see it. And, and I think the thing that, that just struck me was, was how much am I trying to, you know, like I said, fight, well, like you said, fighting that storm out there. Um, we don't have the power to fight that storm. Right. I mean, that's, we think we do, but we don't. So yeah, I just pulled it up. I don't know if I've ever actually seen this this piece of art. This is a pretty. There's a lot going on in here. A lot to take there's in. A lot going on. There's a lot going on, and like I said, now I have it straight across from my desk, and it's a great reminder every day. Huh. What an interesting uh, perspective check. Perspective of simply focusing on trying to love God. And, and love our neighbor as ourself and trust, trust in Jesus who's in the boat with us for the rest of what's happening. That does take a lot off of the plate. It does sort of relieve ourselves of all of this burden to try to fix everything independently, right? Independently of, of the help of our creator. It probably would do a lot to, to help mend some of the, the divisions we create for ourselves as well and the things that we disagree with. I'm always drawn to... To the, I, I've talked to a lot of folks and there's a lot of different people that are attributed with this quote throughout the years, but I don't know if it was St. Augustine that first said, unity in essentials, uh, in a non-essentials liberty, but in all things charity. I'm not sure if he, if he was the first to say that, but that's something that I, I often try to remind myself of, along with maybe the serenity prayer, like help me to th- see what I can change and what I can't and just the wisdom to know the difference and to trust, trust you along the way. Um, yeah, I, I'm going to have to look at this photo some more. There's a lot of thoughts that it's evoking, which I think good art does, right? When, when yeah. there's a good piece of art, it makes you think a lot of things and, and, and process a lot. Well, I am so thankful for the time that you gave me today to ask you all of these questions, to, to talk about some, some fun, specific I don't know, hangups that my generation may or may not have, but I, I genuinely appreciate your transparency, your honesty, your willingness to talk with me on a podcast that, that is, uh, you know, not wor- world renowned or anything. And I'm sure you have plenty of things to do with your time. You're a very busy person. So yet again, I'm so thankful for you giving me the time to, to, to share with you in this hour, to ask you these questions for all the answers you gave. Thank you very much. Well, um, can I just say, thank you. It, you know, I love these conversations. So thank you for reaching out to me. Thanks for being willing to just have the conversation. And I just pray God's blessing upon you and your work and your ministry. 
And uh, I do know these are tough days and I know it's tiring days to be in ministry. And the Lord knows that too. And so I just ask God's hand and God's blessing to be upon you in these days. Thank you so much. Once again, I would like to thank our guest, Dr. Carla Sundberg. It was a privilege and an honor, and I'm so thankful for the opportunity to share some of my own concerns, to be candid, to ask questions, and to have such a, a charitable and graceful interviewee who was willing to talk with me about some very pressing issues, some big things that are happening in the world today. It's also been a privilege and an honor to be your host, to do this show for the past four years with a couple breaks alongside of Byron, and to bring to you, our listeners, stories of young people trying to figure out ministry, stories of those who mentor them, stories of those that have left who have struggles with faith or at least religious institutions. It's been an honor and a privilege, and I look forward to what is in store with this Millennial Pastor podcast in the future. So please, for the sake of the stories yet to come, rate and review this show, share it with your friends, subscribe, and stay tuned for all that is coming next year on the Millennial Pastor Podcast. As always, signing off one last time, I am your host, Josiah, and this has been the Millennial Pastor Podcast.